this is Nicole Tyson, and this is the JPAG podcast series, episode two. We will be discussing three articles from this month's Journal of Pediatric and Adolescent Gynecology with the editor-in-chief, Dr. Paula Hillard. Welcome, Dr. Hillard. Thanks so much. I'm excited to go again. <laughs> great. It's great to talk to you today. I know we had developed a vision to talk about our shared book of interest as we introduced our, pod our podcast. So today we were going to talk about uh, Furious Hours, Murder, Fraud, and the Last Trial of Harper Lee by Casey Kep. So I love this book. I, it, I've uh, been interested in Harper Lee and To Kill a Mockingbird is, is one of my favorite books of all times. And, and it actually was, was rated by uh, PBS uh, listeners and watchers as the all-time favorite book among Americans. And so I love the book. And so I, I really enjoyed learning more about her. And it was, it was a bit, um, it's always been a bit of a mystery as to why she didn't write a second great novel, but it's sort of a lesson of what happens to you when you write a fabulous novel as your first novel. Yeah, absolutely. I just loved it. I think it was number one, just written so nicely and beautifully. And it was such a fun story. It was like a trifecta book because it had like the crime story and then the lawyer story of the trial and then the whole story of, of the backstory of Nell Harper Lee, which I had no idea of her struggles and sort of gave you perspective of what it's like to be an author. Absolutely. And, and alluded to her struggles with alcohol right? Um, as perhaps right. one of the reasons she didn't write it. But, but the crime is just absolutely amazing. This murderer and, and <laughs> exactly. creature who gets away with the serial murders of family members for, um, in, for the insurance. Right. So insurance fraud, which is pretty remarkable. And then his lawyer who defended him and then ultimately defended the murderer. So you're defending the murderer of the murderer. It, it was <laughs> right. And there was, there was all this stuff about, you know, politics and learning about the origins of life insurance. And I mean, I felt like I learned a lot of things and how funny he, the, the actual serial killer was able at predicting people's murders, taking out 17 yes. life insurance policies on his wife. Oh, and, yeah, that would be a, not a person yes. you'd want to marry. Uh, but it was, I thought oh, it was my. a great, it's a great book. So thank you for recommending it. It was good. It. I'd recommend it. Sure. And just yeah. to give the read, uh, the listeners a heads up on our next book, uh, we're going to talk about Where, to, Where the Crawdads Sing uh, by Delia Owens. It's, it's a wonderful book. So if you want to keep up with us for our discussions, you can read ahead. All right. So let's talk about our three articles. And before we start, I know we had mentioned just before we talked about an article we weren't going to go in depth about, but you definitely wanted to highlight. So I absolutely love and, and hardly men to any PEG provider who cares for girls who may need vaginal dilators, um, doctors Olschlinger uh, and uh, Debeck on uh, vaginal dilator therapy. And the subtitle here, A Guide for Providers for Assessing Readiness and Supporting Patients Through the Process Successfully. It's just a, a must read and uh, really... The bottom line is how we need to help girls in um, knowing when they are ready, because when they are ready to start using dilators, they can be very, very successful. So I absolutely recommend that. We're not going to talk in depth about it, but, but it is a must read, I would say, from the, the uh, August issue of JPEG. 
Absolutely. I, I agree. It's a wonderful article. And sort of switching to uh, one of the articles that we actually wanted to go in depth uh, is called uh, Volvar Pain, Volvopain in Pediatric and Adolescent Patients uh, by Angela Dunford, Deepti Rampal, Maria Keeley, and Sonia Grover. And uh, this was a great uh, article describing the experience of a, a pretty extensive tertiary pediatric and adolescent service that provides care to children and adolescents who presented with vulvar pain. Uh, and it was a retrospective analysis using electronic medical records. And all of the girls that they evaluated, which is very unique, was, were under 18. Uh, what, what were some of the highlights that you felt about this article? So the first thing I have to say is that as an editor, I struggled with the terminology and the term that is used. And, and Sonia Grover and her colleagues are in Melbourne, and they use the term vulval, V-U-L-V-A-L. And we more commonly talk about vulvar. And so as I'm into words, I'm thinking, <laughs> what's the difference? And is there a difference? And, and I found it sort of internationally half and half. So um, some of our some of the JPEG readers will will use one term and others will use the other. So so that was the first thing I thought was was interesting. But this case series, they had um, 47 patients. They chose them as younger than 18. So that's the group that that often we see. And, um, you know, they when they looked at their series, thing they found was that the vast majority of these these girls had had urinary symptoms so 80 percent of them had had urinary symptoms and most of them had been on this fairly long journey to get to a PEG provider so they typically uh, in my practice these girls would have seen their primary clinician they might have seen somebody in urology they may then ultimately get to me, but they've often seen a couple of people and, and waited quite a while. So uh, a median of a year overall for their whole population and, and more than two years for the girls that were pre-monarchal. So I think it's, it's a shame. And, and those girls did have urinary symptoms, but they also had other descriptors. And I thought it was interesting to read the descriptors and we all know because we care for these girls that the terms that they use may differ. Their moms may then interpret those terms, but the the terms they they listed itching, pain at night, like a stabbing pain at night, is really common in the girls that I see. A bubbling sensation is also one that I've seen more than one girl with that as a complaint. Uh, there are bubbles down there <laughs> and burning as well. So. So um, those descriptors may vary and I think make it harder for us to sort things out. Yeah, I agree. I, I was surprised about the predominance of urinary symptoms. I think we talk so much about in our training and colleagues about constipation, but yes. this really did a, had a more focus on the urinary symptoms. Urinary symptoms, for sure. So that and the delay and, and most of the girls <laughs> that they examined as, as I've seen too, most of them had pretty normal findings. Some with a little bit of erythema and, and some with labial adhesions. But the, the finding that was most prominent was pain on touch with a Q-tip, which of course, as we're assessing for vulvar pain, we will assess that. Right, and, and actually expanding on that. So they didn't really discuss it at length, but I think that's such a helpful 
educational tool is that Q-tip test. How, describe how you do that. Well, I will, um, depending on the child's age and their willingness, I may get out a mirror and show them and I'll encourage them to look with a mirror and I'll describe again, if they're old enough, but the ones who are, you know, eight, nine, 10 years old may be willing to look and, and see and hear a description of the, of the correct terms. They may, you and I have talked about uh, the, the many terms that we hear for describing the vulva and the vagina. And my editorial about the dilators is, is a, a using the term vajayjay, which was Oprah's term. So we hear all of those terms. Absolutely. Uh, but the opportunity then to tell these girls what the, the official real names are of, <laughs> of the area, the, the various parts, and then um, telling them that I'm going to touch in, in the vulva with a Q-tip and demonstrating how that might feel on their leg, inner thigh first, and I'll I'll ask them to describe what that feels like. And then I'll ask them to tell me if there are areas that hurt. So yes or no, does this hurt? That makes sense. So you start off somewhere non-tender. Non-tender. Potential yep. tender, right? Yep. No doubt. And I definitely would direct all of you listeners to Dr. Hillard's editorial this month. It's, it's one of my all-time favorites, The Dilators for the JJ. So it's a must read. Um, and so just thank to, you. So the main takeaways I think from the study are, are what you absolutely said is that there's such a significant delay in diagnosis. Um, and these definitely can be contributors of future pelvic pain or fibromyalgia or other pain syndromes that these girls have and sort of getting involved early to help treat and acknowledge and dilate or not dilate, diagnose um, dilators on the brain diagnose uh, really can be helpful to prevent future adolescent and adult problems. And that was sort of their, their summary point, I think. It, they, they did. They said specifically that we may be able to help minimize the risks of future sexual dysfunction and body image issues and, and an opportunity. And along those lines, they listed their treatments. They used uh, physiotherapy and, and finding someone to work with there is often a challenge, but important. But they also um, quite uh, frequently used um, medications, so neuromodulatory medications, uh, amitriptyline, gabapentin, imipramine, um, as important drugs. Sometimes families are anxious about those drugs and, and for us now being able to cite a case series where these were successful and not all long-term use. So they had about a third of their patients who over the course of time that they were following them were able to, to discontinue the medication treatment. So that may be reassuring to families as, as well as, as we will try it and see if it's helpful. It's been helpful in this reported case series but it isn't necessarily going to be long-term use. Right. Yeah, that's a super reassuring for parents to hear as well. And then I think one of the things that would be nice to add maybe to future research is the role of um, physical therapy, you know, working yes. in a multi-modality sort of format, even with young girls. I, I think I've been collaborating with a colleague who has a very special interest in pediatric vulvodynia, and it's been an enormous resource and help. Um, so I think that's something that'll be interesting to see in the future, more, more Absolutely. studies adding that. Absolutely. Important. 
yeah. important. Any other thoughts or key points on this study you don't want to forget to mention? No, I mean, I, I think the main thing is that this is a, the, the largest case series that, that I have seen um, with this important problem. We don't all see a ton of patients, but looking at this case series can really help inform our management. Excellent. Okay, well, let's move on to the second article we wanted to discuss, and this is titled Metabolic Syndrome in Adolescents with Polycystic Ovary Syndrome prevalence on the basis of different diagnostic criteria. And this was by Sinem Agbul and Andrea Bonney. And this uh, was also a retrospective chart review. Uh, it, was, it was very elaborate and detailed uh, on how they did their recruitment. And I know you and I also spoke, one of, the, one of the fascinating and great things about this article, I think, is talking about the importance of diagnosis and how that, that sort of influences their treatment and their outcome um, and so I think that's this, this study really comprehensively talks about all the various diagnoses for PCOS in adults and teens. So very nicely done. Their, their series, and again, a retrospective chart review, but their, their series included patients that they had enough information to look at the various diagnostic criteria and to compare them. So from this article, uh, they looked at the various criteria for diagnosing PCOS. And what they found was that the Pediatric Endocrine, Endocrine Society criteria, which are the most adolescent specific, had the highest correlation with metabolic syndrome. So I think that's important for us to think about. And, and really one of the take home messages for me, they found that using the PES criteria, 52% uh, of those that they diagnosed with PCOS had metabolic syndrome. So over half had metabolic syndrome. And um, the criteria for metabolic syndrome include some uh, criteria that we would find getting a lipid profile. So having high triglycerides or low HDL, having elevated blood pressure, um, impaired glucose metabolism, and then central obesity. And with central obesity, the reminder for me was that I don't keep a tape measure in my exam rooms and I probably should looking at this. So uh, uh, having a waist circumference at greater than the 90th percentile is important with metabolic syndrome. Yeah. So that would sort of change your clinical practice in some ways, how you, how you would measure their, their risk factors for <clears throat> metabolic syndrome. Yes. It'd be more by waist circumference than by BMI because of their age. And correct. And I think one of the really nice things about this article, which I definitely plan to sort of cut out and save is this table one with all the different criteria for PCOS, because I think it's important, it's important to read that in the context of other studies we may find. And I think when you talk about the Pediatric Endocrine Society criteria, it's very well delineated in that table. So it's super helpful. And I think uh, it kind of is more aligned with the study in the sense that, like you alluded to, there was 5,200 patients eligible for evaluation and they weaned down their study, study cohort to 37 uh, because nearly 4,000 didn't have this ultrasound, or well, almost 5,000, right, had no ultrasound. So it's, it's interesting. 
So um, absolutely. And uh, I, I agree that a side-by-side comparison of the various criteria is helpful uh, as a reminder for us, but also um, to think about as we're talking to trainees. Right, right. Absolutely. It's complicated in adolescence, sort of like the first study, not um, adolescents and children aren't always many adults and all the criteria don't parallel um, the same way for sure. All right, well, let's move on to our final article, which is extremely timely, um, talking about, this is just a really nice review article, and it, it certainly resonates with, I'm sure, both of us who live in California, um, what uh, pediatric, what every pediatric gynecologist should know about marijuana use in adolescence uh, by Nicholas Chady and Sharon Levy. And this is just a very thorough review article, and, and I actually learned quite a few things about uh, sort of medical marijuana and the limitations of studies that we have. Um, what, what were sort of the key points that you liked about this study or this review article? Well, I, I agree. Uh, for me, this really was extremely helpful to summarize what we know in terms of the research. And it's limited for all ages, but it's especially limited uh, for adolescents. And so I think that importance, you know, bottom line in terms of what we tell our patients is that there is limited evidence, but but we do have concerns about the effects of marijuana on the developing brain. And it's a bit of a challenge to say to a teen, you know, your brain isn't through developing, but I think to some extent they know that. Um, and the idea that, that by using marijuana, they... Um, they may be impacting that brain development is something that actually does um, make a difference to some kids. So, so that's, you know, the bottom line of what we say to kids is doesn't change, but I, I really enjoyed the summary of the research. Right. It, it actually is somewhat shocking because I think in so many ways people have become sort of placated by the potential medicinal help. But I think, again, we have to think about the role of teens and they talked about the impact on their sort of mental health as well, um, the increased risk of de- developing depression uh, and, and schizophrenia and practice the uh, faster progression, how girls go from a faster progression from first use to problematic use compared to boys. So I, I think it was a really nice sort of description of all those dangers for our, our teen girls that we see. The addictive properties were emphasized and and how teens uh, perceive marijuana to be safe. It's legal. So how can it be safe, at least in California, um, is is what I hear. And so teens may think of it as being safe. Um, The statistic, the daily use of marijuana is now more frequent than daily tobacco use which I hadn't quite known. I mean, I don't see very many kids who use tobacco anymore, but I do see as we screen lots of kids who at least have tried marijuana. Right, right. The, the concept for me, um, having grown up in the 60s and 70s, is that current marijuana products are just so much more potent. Um, they say threefold more potent since the 1990s and compared to the 1970s, even even more so. So so that's that Im- is important for parents and us to know and keep in mind. Right. And I, I think I've definitely had parents and patients 
who come to me sort of in the premise of using marijuana for dysmenorrhea or PMS or nausea because CBD oil has been approved in a very specific population of pediatrics. Um, and so I think kind of this, uh, this does a nice job speaking to that is that it's for one indication in one small population um, and it's so the indication of, of seizures that are unresponsive to other medications is really the only indication <laughs> right. for CBD. Um, it, it, it emphasizes the article gives a good background about the difference between the, the different cannabinoids and, and THC with its psychoactive properties and CBD that does not have those same properties. And again, the conclusion that many parents and kids draw is therefore it's safe right and i wish we knew much more and that's the article really points out how much we don't know there is some interesting suggestion about potential benefits for chronic pain or chronic pelvic pain or endometriosis or and or dysmenorrhea so i think there's there's some potential promise particularly of cbd um but but we don't know these things yet and so important to recognize how little we actually do. Right. And I think this is a timely topic in the face of the recent severe pulmonary disease from vaping. How are you, how are you sort of addressing that in your clinical practice and, and maybe including the marijuana discussion? What, what's a good counseling strategy that you've developed? So as part of my dot phrase for a HEADS assessment, I do have an assessment of, of ever use or current use of various substances, tobacco, alcohol, marijuana. And until fairly recently, I hadn't been more specific about vaping. And so I have started now screening for use of any marijuana products and, and either smoking or, or, um, or eating edibles. Um, but now I'm asking specifically about vaping, and that could be of marijuana or of tobacco. So I'm asking more specifically about vaping. And around kids talk about juuling, which of course is the specific product for for vaping. This the uh, um, the specific company that makes it. And and the first time I heard that term, I had to ask. <laughs> My, my trainees, what are they talking about? What is this dueling? Um, but, you know, you ask the question and you learn the answers. And uh, so I am more specifically now screening for vaping. Right, right. And what do you think about what's been happening with these horrible? I think it's it scary. scary. I think that, that um, and when I was seeing more adults, I would have adults who would, would use the, the vaping products with tobacco in an effort to quit smoking. Right. And so there's that use. And that's not something I see in kids, okay. but I saw that in, in adults. But I think that, that the current cautions and the current legal um, climate is suggesting that these products certainly and the flavored products that have a particular appeal right. um, to kids my husband was was noting recently there was a news news article that we we saw on tv um that uh, suggested the flavor of peanut butter and jam oh my gosh uh, who is that <laughs> right to? and bubble gum and and yeah exactly <laughs> yeah so I know it is, it's important to, to have a, an open discussion because I think that there's 
Um, there's some just important issues and limitations, just like this article alludes to in the information we have about efficacy for treatment, even though they are, and I'm air quoting, legalized, if you will, period. Yes. <laughs> um, all right. Well, great. Well, I think we covered all of our bases. Do you have any final comments you want to share with our listeners? No, I would just say um, thanks for reading JPEG. Thanks for listening to us. And uh, we welcome any comments or thoughts that you all might have. Please send us any thoughts or suggestions for the future and future podcasts. Wonderful. Well, thank you again, Dr. Hiller. That was a great JPEG podcast number two. We look forward to future ones coming your way. Here. Bye.